J. Guru Dave. Registration is now open for Tom's 2024 Australian tour. Once again, Tom will be giving knowledge sessions and group meditations, as well as a four-night, five-day rounding retreat in Jeringong. If you haven't learned Vedic meditation yet, Tom will be teaching Vedic meditation while in Sydney, as well as advanced techniques to those who have already learned Vedic meditation. Tom's Australia tour runs from June 6th to the 30th, and you can find out more at tomknowles.com slash Australia. Sahana vavatu, sahana bhunaktu, sahaviryam karavahavahai, tejasvinavatitamastu, mavitvishavahai. Thank you for listening. I'm Tom Knowles, and this is my podcast, The Vedic Worldview. Since 2005, Josh Korda has been the guiding teacher of Dharma Punks, NYC. He's the author of the book, Unsubscribe, and has been profiled by The New York Times, Village Voice, and CBS News. He has also written for the Buddhist magazines Lion's Roar, Tricycle, and Buddha Dharma. We're glad to welcome him to the Vedic Worldview and encourage you to find out more about him on dharmapunksnyc.com. Hello, Josh. I'm going to start by asking you, what is punk ideology and how does it relate to Buddhism and spirituality? Well, it's, uh, defining punk ideology is a, a little bit of a misnomer in the sense that no, if you asked uh, five people who grew up in any punk circles or movements or, um, uh, you know, conglomeration, they'd all come up with a different answer. It's not anywhere near as defined as a spiritual lineage. Um, certainly, uh, there's similarities across most, uh, I would say, punk ideology in the sense that uh, questioning of authority uh, anti-materialism, willingness to live outside of traditional careerist uh, paths. Um, certainly there would be a do-it-yourself, DIYs it's called, uh, mentality. There would be uh, uh, a, a, a very strong community ties uh, associated with uh, support rather than always uh, relying on professionals, uh, things like that. I, I don't know that I would want even hazard going in even that far if I was going to define uh, the sort of punk uh, worldview, but that's, those are some ideas. In fact, it sounds to me like the process of attempting to define it would be antithetical to what it is that people who are attracted to it are attracted by. Uh, you know, too much of a specificity makes it turn into something which uh, it sounds to me like people who are attracted to it would not want to be engaged in. Absolutely. There's definitely a suspicion of, uh, of not only institutions and uh, uh, certainly um, 
traditional capitalist materialist uh, uh, frameworks and uh, but there also would be a suspicion of uh, trying to define it <laughs> itself <laughs> with any sort of solidity or concreteness. And that leads to my next question, which is your book entitled Unsubscribe talks about unsubscribing from, quote, life as you thought it had to be, unquote. In your view, when and where do we develop these notions about how life should be? Well, they're inculcated from the, I mean, the dominant hegemonic ideologies surround us uh, everywhere. I mean, from the moment you're a child uh, watching cartoons, <laughs> you're inundated with cultural beliefs. Men are depicted as being uh, sort of uh, uh, people who are rewarded for being, uh, uh, you know, uh, violent, massive, uh, macho, uh, for being single-minded, for disregarding uh, community, uh, and women are very often consigned uh, in misogynistic systems to, you know, just consensus building and caretaker roles and so forth. So from the very beginning, there's these very homogenizing uh, uh, roles and uh, stereotypes foisted upon us. And then the way history is presented is great men with great ideas, generally white men with white ideas. Yes. And then, you know, that continues everywhere, not just in the movies and the TV shows and the cartoons and the, the indoctrination is, is everywhere. As a great uh, Italian philosopher, Antonio Gramsci, noted uh, uh, when he was asked why do, you know, people not question authority or uh, fight back against uh political regimes that are not in their best interest. He said it's essentially because we're, uh, you know, indoctrinated into views that justify our uh, enslavement to a degree. That's such a resonant view with my own. I'd like to ask you, I think you agree from what you've been saying, that, you know, the hypnosis of social conditioning does rely upon an idea, which is that, you know, members of our culture are eminently suggestible. The cruel word would probably be gullible. It looks as though in our desperate search for identity, we're always outward looking and whoever has the consistent strongest message seems to get the airtime that provides us with the indoctrination which we imbibe. One of the things that I think is a problem sociologically is just how suggestible how hypnotizable members of our culture have become well i the only thing i might perhaps question in that is the assumption that it's gotten worse or better that if you look at human history the vast bulk was uh, of the three hundred thousand years we've been hoping sapiens uh, we've lived almost all of it in hunter-gatherer, you know, clans. And in those clans, uh, you would live within a, maybe six or seven other adults for your entire life. Mm. And so deeply embedded by natural selection into our uh, survival <laughs> was the need to 
be agreeable and to follow and to cooperate with others and to not be, to not question. Uh, and that makes made complete sense when, you know, much of your life would be going out foraging uh, and hunting uh, where if you ever were sick, you completely relied upon the other five people in your group. You had to make very, very darn sure that you would be uh, cared for and agreeable to others. Uh, but now today, in, you know, we live in modern city-states. We don't need to worry as much about what other people think or uh, just follow along blindly in the footsteps of others. It's essentially a evolutionary uh, sort of uh, holdover that we are as uh, much prone to suggestibilities we are. I think that's a fabulous analysis. And, you know, when I look at the changes that can take place now, I mean, the, you know, we are, we are at the dawning of an age which could go in any number of ways sociologically, but there is potential if there is, uh, you know, a critical mass of people who can make use of that potential to begin to conceive and construct absolutely different ways of operating with each other. And it seems to me as though we're looking at whether or not we can afford to go with the old, which are in fact now obsolete ways of behaving as groups versus, you know, our, our absolute requirement, perhaps evolutionarily, to find progressive change and to forge that change. What, what do you think about that? Well, certainly. I mean, the Buddha was one of many historical figures that uh, more than anything, the Buddha was a, uh, a radical proponent for a different way of uh, living together in the world. I mean, the bulk of his teachings concerned how people would live together in community, in a series of suttas called the Vinaya. And, uh, you know, the Buddha's... Um, agenda was very, very different than social Darwinism, where, you know, he who is, uh, speaks loudest or is most violent or strongest or uh, always determines the direction of a pack or a tribe, the Buddha proposed very somewhat strict, uh, very um, utilitarian in a way, guidelines that demanded that consensus, uh, uh, democratic processes, you know, the renunciates were instructed on how to resolve conflicts and all that. And it was a very different model than what we have today. And certainly I would love to think that it's a direction that may uh, be adopted more often in the future, but uh, I can't say I'm entirely optimistic about it. <laughs> Thank you. I mean, it, it seems like it's incumbent on us to at least culture some optimism, whether or not we achieve it on a daily basis is another <laughs> matter. <laughs> hey, for over 10 years, you have given talks at zencare.org a nonprofit organization that trains hospice volunteers. And for those of our listeners who don't know, hospice 
is, amongst other things, end-of-life care. What does it take to be a hospice volunteer, and what support and advice do you offer to them? Well, it's, it started my own life with uh, being with both my parents. Uh, my mom died of MS, my father of Parkinson's, and they were both sort of illnesses that very gradually took their toll and led to long-term uh, institutionalization. So there was a long time where I was visiting them. And, and the familiarity with seeing what, uh, on a weekly basis for years, uh, end-of-life uh, care looked like, obviously motivated one to play some role. Certainly, there's benefits in being a uh, someone who provides care to people who are in end-of-life situations or phases. The first is that it's probably the most powerful way to reprioritize your life when you are facing with someone else or at least exposed to mortality. When people are facing terminal illnesses or progressive uh, diseases, they rarely care about the same things that people who are far away from those stages in life care about. They don't get dragged into small conflicts with coworkers or family members. They're far more capable of forgiveness. They're far more treasure the connection with loved ones over material goods or uh, financial concerns. So um, what you get from it and what somebody would need to be have to be interested in volunteering for it is simply one compassion and also a desire to have a completely different perspective on life. I guarantee you there's no faster way to change your outlook than volunteering for people in need of help. Well, that really answered pretty much my next question, unless you want to flesh that out some more. But, you know, since uh, you're someone who uses Buddhism and meditation as a method of treatment for sick and dying, are there other ways that you'd like to expand upon that how this informs your work and those who are well and living? The vast majority of my work is, as most uh, spiritual, you know, chaplains, teachers do, is involved in meeting with individuals who are not in hospice, who are just suffering from anxiety, depression, uh, a series of relational disappointments, uh, divorce, whatever. So a lot of my work is just uh, essentially spiritual counseling. In fact, that's the vast majority of what I do. Uh, certainly, my background in psychology and in the Dharma are entirely what I draw upon. And it's of endless benefit for me because we all have social circuits in our brain that reward us for altruistic behavior. Uh, that's another byproduct of, that's a, a better byproduct of natural selection is that we are rewarded with positive emotions when we volunteer or do acts to the benefit for the benefit of others so i can simply assure people that whatever form their altruistic endeavors take it will give them a sense of purpose and fulfillment in their life that uh, 
simply career achievements won. Fabulous. I'm always interested in how to encourage students to maintain regularity in their practices when life becomes overwhelming. You know, obviously, in general, our meditation and spirituality involve techniques which, if you apply them regularly, are designed to be life-improving, but then life does become overwhelming from time to time. Do you have any suggestions or ways of helping your students to stay with their dharma, with their practice, even through the thick and thin of life and living? Most of my teaching is not always uh, geared or aimed towards trying to get people to meditate because, uh, frankly, the vast bulk of the psychological issues that I work with stem from people who are poorly socialized in the sense that they don't have enough interpersonal support. Human beings are emotionally co-regulating in the sense that we're a social species with social brains and the emotional damage and uh, disorders that we suffer from come from having relationships with people who are unkind, who are dismissive, who are abusive. And the, and healing really occurs when people find a safe community of compassionate, empathetic, appreciative others. So while meditation is a wonderful tool, and it's, a, it's a certainly very, very beneficial in giving people tools to process painful life experiences, in the interim before they can find uh, interpersonal support. But the vast, vast majority of my work involves encouraging, helping, uh, supporting people to find other people that will form the sort of secure bonds they need to thrive. In my 50 years or so of teaching Vedic meditation and the theoretical underpinnings that accompany it, I've frequently come across some of my most grateful students are people who are either have embarked on sobriety or uh, are wanting to and uh, may be engaged in 12-step programs. What's your experience with regards to people who've recognized the need for sobriety either have embarked on it or are in the, in the process? I've been sober for 23 years. Like. My father became a Buddhist in the early 70s when he, as an alcoholic, entered AA and they demanded that he have a spiritual practice. So he had always been interested in Buddhism. So that was became his and it was surrounding all the books and he'd take me to hear famous Buddhist teachers when I was a teen. So it's been in my life for 40 years, even when I was bottoming out as an alcoholic addict. Um, so it was instrumental in my own uh, recovery because I don't, I am a atheist in the classic sense that I, I've never been able to have any conviction and this idea of a God orchestrating the universe. That's just not based, built into my DNA. Uh, and Buddhism was there to give a sort of coherent practice that would allow me to 
uh, make sense of life without uh, the sort of uh, theistic approach. And certainly in my communities where I teach, probably at least 40% are sober, uh, not just because of my own connections, but because of the fellow who started Donald Pumps originally back in 2001, Noah, was also sober. And so we've always had a massive uh, population from the recovery community. So many of my listeners are fascinated to hear from the Buddhist perspective. How do you see where are the distinctions and relationships, or perhaps a better way of putting it is, what is the relationship between Buddhism as you see it and the more Vedic way of practicing techniques and methods of engaging the mind? Well, certainly the self-soothing techniques that uh, are in both are very, very similar. In fact, the Buddha, when he left his family to seek spiritual education, went to study with people in the traditions associated now, uh, we believe at least one of the two, I'm not sure if it was a Dr. Ramaputra or Akila Kalamas, but one of them probably was in the Vedantic uh, tradition. Um, certainly the methods of jhana meditations, they are a lot in common. And also similar conceptions of what we would call karma. But there are, of course, differences. Probably the most obvious is, uh, uh, to my knowledge, and of course I'm by no means even remotely <laughs> deeply steeped in Vedanta, but to my understanding there are different schools of it, but to some degree there's a belief in most schools of the Atman or Jiva, a sense of a soul that underlies um, the construction of the human personality, which sort of conceals it. But there's this somewhat universal Atman that uh, ties individuals together. And then there's also in, in Vedanta, I believe there's the Brahman. The Buddha didn't teach that there was a soul or a lasting underlying uh, psychological identity or self. In fact, uh, probably the most radical break he had with the Indus Valley religions of his era was that he proposed that the mind was very complex, comprised of what he called uh, khandas or five different uh, ongoing threads, thoughts, feelings, body sensations, states of consciousness, moods, etc. And that those were always in flux and changing and that there was no core self or soul to be found. So that's probably the big difference yeah. in the sense that there's a lot of suttas that uh, develop that theme that uh, seeing no self as, as it's known or the lack of a ongoing identity that's solid, that doesn't change, uh, is something in Buddhist perspectives is liberating. Um, obviously, there's different ways you could look at it. Some psychologists would say, yes, being liberated from a sense of self can, can be uh, alleviating, but others say that having a sense of a self 
or a connection with all other beings would create a sense of resilience and strength. So there's benefits and drawbacks to each view. You know, my experience in teaching thousands of people over the last uh, five decades has been that most of my students actually don't even care about all these ideas. All they care about is that they meditate and they feel great as a result of it. And they leave all of these philosophical arguments to people like us who care about these things and want to interpret them. But most people who learn to meditate seem to be simply interested in the, the, the evidence in their own personal lives as to how it affects them. And that's about where their, their philosophical interest ends. Uh, and of course, then there are those who have a much deeper philosophical bent who who want to understand why it works the way it works and what's the ultimate theory about it and so on. And, and of course, there's plenty of pre-thought for centuries and millennia that's gone into explaining why it is that these universal human experiences, when you settle down to your least excited state, why it is that there's such a commonality of experience that, you know, you can kind of pick any one of three or four different ways of explaining this. And I think personally, when I read the lectures of the historic Buddha, I find his descriptions absolutely satisfying and not really all that much at odds with descriptions by Shankara, who came after him, who also said, don't bother yourself with all of these, you know, he didn't use the word highfalutin, but that's the way I'm interpreting it, ideas, you know, have the experience and live it. I mean, certainly, I think that's probably absolutely true for the vast bulk of practitioners. I teach in New York, and if there's ever a philosophical, cynical, want to know what's behind the, the hype uh, group, it would be the communities where I teach. I don't really claim that the communities that I'm generally found uh, leading are by any means representative of the vast bulk of uh, spiritual practitioners out there. Mm-hmm. But yeah, the, crew that, the crews that I teach, you know, at least for the last uh, 14 years, have been a pretty, they, they actually do love to get into the sort of, they love both, the sort of ins, meditation instruction, the practical tools, but they also like to hear about the, uh, the philosophy as well, maybe just because they just want to know that it's there. Yeah, the theoretical underpinnings are there to support the practice in a sense, or at least to explain the experience. Josh, many years ago, I was one of the main practitioners involved in a program of bringing meditation into the prison systems in the United States and in Australia. We had a program which at that time was entitled Freedom Behind Bars, and it became very popular with uh, inmates. And one of the ways that we found, regular ways we found to make our way into those institutions uh, was for me and my colleagues to approach prison officers and the prison officers associations who weren't the immediate target, but who, with their support, after a few of them learned to meditate, they began suggesting that inmates would benefit tremendously from it. And in fact, uh, that turned out to be absolutely true and a very popular program in the 1980s particularly. I wonder to what extent you've uh, had any experience in that area, or if you have that in your realm of aspiration to work in or to have an impact inside the incarcerated communities? Um, I have. 
not some uh, Buddhist teachers I know really, including one of my teachers, uh, really specialized in that. And certainly in the U.S., there's a lot of Buddhist traditions associated, Vipassana traditions associated with prison uh, work. When I was getting sober, probably uh, even 23 years ago, I did bring uh, meetings to Rikers, which is a prison in New York. And I didn't find that my that my personality felt at home uh, very much in that community because it was an exceptionally over-the-top uh, macho environment. Yeah. And I'm a little bit laid back and uh, kind of have a bit of an intellectual bent. <laughs> I did, under that, uh, volunteer uh, teaching uh, meditation to parolees. And... That I lasted a little longer, but I didn't feel again that I was meshing mm, that yeah. well with the population. On the other hand, the training of, uh, of hospice volunteers working with the sick and uh, the vast bulk of uh, offering spiritual counseling, which is what I, I basically do when I'm not teaching writing that's been what has called me hmm. well josh i think that's about all we have time for today i just wanted to thank you again very much for your uh, participation in my podcast and josh thank you so much i hope that when i come to new york my producers might make an arrangement for you and i to have at least a brief meeting together, perhaps over tea or coffee or lunch or something like that. I hope to meet you in person. Well, that would be awesome. And thank you so much for having me on your podcast. And I look forward to listening to it. Likewise. Thank you so much. If you're enjoying this and feel that you're getting something from it, there's a way you can help us make this commercial free. Go on my website, look up the link for the podcasts, and make an individual donation. Thank you. <laughs>